0: something that I feel like I want to shout from the rooftops, and I will say it to anyone who will let me, is we are great in psychology at treating anxiety.
1: Remember March of 2020. When the world changed as we knew it because of the coronavirus, as hard as that time was, a bright light for me was this interview with Dr. Lisa DeMoor. And even though we were chatting specifically about how to deal with the stress of those unprecedented times, so much of what she shared is still applicable. There are plenty of hard things in our world right now, and being mindful of and caring for our mental health and the mental health of our children is as important as ever. So please enjoy this throwback episode with renowned psychologist and best selling author, Dr. Damore. Oh, and my cute sister, Shelly. Back in the early days of the podcast, each of my four sisters took turns co hosting with me, and uh, I kind of miss it. Do you have a pressing question about parenting but don't know who to ask? Well, we are women supporting women, and we've got you. I'm Vanessa Quigley, and welcome to the Mom Force Podcast brought to you by Chatbooks. First, let me ask you, can you relate to this message that we received from chat booker Millie? She says, once I had kids, I realized that we don't really have printed photos anymore. Everything is on our phones and computers. And what if something happened and I lost all of the cherished photos of my children? I would be devastated. So I started to look for a solution and I came across chat books. They are easy to make, affordable, and can even be used as decor in my home. Thank you, Millie. I love to hear how people capture and hold on to their memories. And with our monthbooks, we make it easy to celebrate all of your family's big milestones, but also the magical moments in your every day. If you're new to chatbooks and want to try out a monthbook subscription, use the code podcast20 for 20% off at checkout. And happy chatbooking. <laughs> Hello, Dr. Damore. Thank you so much for joining me and my sister Shelly today. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, I am so excited to chat about stress and anxiety in our children because it seems like maybe it's not just my children. or all children feeling this? Children. Are we all feeling stress? Can you just tell us real fast, where are you calling from?
0: I live in Shaker Heights, Ohio, and that's where I am right now. Ohio. Okay. What
1: are the governor's orders there as far as sheltering in place?
0: that we are to do it. Our governor has been very proactive, um, I think, put us on shelter in place earlier than most states, which has been a reassuring thing in the context of current conditions.
1: Yes, yes. We've been following very closely our governor here in Utah. There's a stay home, stay safe directive, and we are also following that very carefully. But it seems to be different state by state.
2: Here in Utah, you're supposed to limit your group's social gatherings to 10 or less and even in florida they were doing just county by county until yesterday because just you know i think that everybody's just assessing the situation individually which i feel like is good but i like to err on the on the side of the safe side (laughs) yes
1: well with this new crazy world that we find ourselves living in there are a lot of mixed emotions and i am so excited to be talking to you specifically about this now, but we've had this interview planned for months and I am a huge fan of
0: your books. Oh, thank you.
1: And I have so many questions about the books, but first tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and your family.
0: Sure, so I'm a clinical psychologist. I have a very, in some ways, very traditional training and I thought I was gonna have a much more traditional career. After I got my PhD in psychology, I was teaching at the university level and writing academic work and practicing in a small private practice. And then um, slowly sort of drifted (laughs) into working for broad audiences while still maintaining actually much of the traditional pieces I've done. So I would say over about the last seven or eight years, my career has shifted quite dramatically toward writing two books uh, for parents. And even though my books are targeted towards parents of girls, I hear all the time that 80% of what I write applies to boys as well. And I write the monthly adolescence column for the New York Times, and I work as a regular contributor to CBS News. So I really hope that I am able to bring the best of what we know on the most sort of academic and clinical sides of psychology to um, a wide audience. So that seems to have been where I've landed of late, and I feel really, really fortunate to do it. I am the mother of two daughters. My husband and I have a 16 year old daughter and a nine year old daughter. I feel really, really fortunate. That's
1: awesome. I really, really loved your column in the New York Times, especially these last couple of articles about the quarantine times, the quarantine agers. You've coined a new term.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was funny because my editor was like, well, do you want to run it today or tomorrow? I was like, run it today. We have to get that headline. <laughs> I was like, if we don't get it, someone's going to get it tomorrow. Like, get it now. <laughs> oh, it was
1: so good. And I want to talk more specifically about how this quarantine has affected our families. But I have to say, I love teenagers. I have a house full of them. I actually have seven kids. Right now, I have five because two of my college kids have come home. But I love teenagers
2: so much. Shelley here, she has five kids, and her oldest is just She's 12. She's right? 12. So I was so happy to hear that you have a nine year old because you have like real life experience with your own children and and your professional experience. But I have a 12 year old and a nine year old daughter and then three little boys. But even just reading the articles that I found online, also the corn teenager was hilarious. I sent those to my sister in laws who all have several teenagers who have been in lockdown in California for weeks now. And it was like reprieve for them to see that they're not alone, that we're all in this together. I feel like I was, you know, well equipped with my twelve year old. But yeah, I don't I don't have the teenagers yeah. at home.
0: And I have a sixteen year old daughter too. So I get to really um enjoy, you know, these two very different developmental phases and it's a lot of fun.
1: Well, in your books, you talk about how some stress and anxiety is actually good for our kids. And I'd love to start with you sharing what you mean by that and why that is.
0: So it's this is something, this is probably why I felt compelled to write the most recent book, which is Under Pressure, um, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls, is that we are seeing a rise in stress and anxiety in young people. But what I've also observed is that there's also been a growing misunderstanding about stress and anxiety. So not all stress and anxiety is okay or good, but a lot of what our kids experience is just normal and expectable. So to take them one at a time, stress occurs anytime we're adapting to new circumstances. It's just part of being human to feel stressed as we, you know, start a new grade level or try take on a new job or welcome a baby into the house like anytime things change, we experience that as stressful. This is a particularly interesting point at this moment under COVID-19 pandemic p- conditions because so much of the stress that people are experiencing is just adapting to a new way of doing everything all at once. And and I I think that's a point we can't underline enough. But stress is a normal and healthy function. It's part of being human, and it happens when we grow. And, And that was something I really wanted to make sure we were articulating for ourselves and our children, because There can, in the culture, be this sense that stress is somehow bad, or you want to minimize it all the time, or avoid it, or you don't want to see a kid stressed out. And and that's not really true. There's a limit to how much stress is good for kids, um, or anyone, really. We don't like chronic stress, and we don't like trauma. But short of that, stress is sort of a done deal, and it actually lends to growth, it builds durability, we can welcome it.
1: What's an example of chronic stress?
0: So chronic stress are things like living in conditions of poverty, you know, is a chronic stress condition. Mm -hmm. I do, I don't worry much, but I do worry that the COVID-19 stuff is going to turn into chronic stress for some people, you know, being cooped up in their homes, not being able to go out, um, missing, you know, their normal supports.
2: All of the fears surrounded about like just getting sick, right? I feel like I've been well, talking to of friends. The future. Yeah. Everything of- in the future is uncertain right now. Yeah. There's so much fear. Yeah.
0: So we also see chronic stress sometimes in kids of privilege who have enormous opportunities available to them, but also tremendous demands. Um, kids who are taking 4APs and doing a sport and seriously engaged with some lab somewhere that they're doing experiments in. Um, the definition of chronic stress is that you don't have a chance to recover, that you're just exerting yourself all the time and working to manage circumstances constantly, and you don't get any downtime. So we worry about chronic stress.
1: Yeah. And you do talk about recovery and how important that is in your books. In this time with COVID-19, how how do you suggest we recover from the, the constant
0: stress? well so what will be critical in terms of long term outcomes related to covid-19 and i mean this for everybody kids adults people with fragile mental health before this people who did not have fragile mental health before this it's all going to come down to how you cope and there's negative coping strategies and positive coping strategies so if people fall back on negative coping strategies whether it's emotional isolation or turning to substances or using what i call sort of junk habits you know looking at social media when they should be sleeping or eating poorly or being sedentary, they're going to really feel this in the long run. If people can do the opposite, if they can make sure they maintain emotional connections and make sure that they are taking excellent care of themselves, exercising, getting outdoors, eating well, finding happy distractions when they're upset to manage their feelings, they'll come out well in the long run. So recovery here is going to be about coping but what matters is how people choose to cope.
2: And recovery, usually it sounds like something that is a resting time. But this in this COVID-19 times, it sounds like it's work. You actually need to be actively thinking about how you're going to recover during these times because it's like during the COVID-19 times, you need to be recovering as well. It's not a period where you can just hang on for the stress and then recover afterwards. So that's what kind of just spoke to me just then was that like I need to be actively recovering through this time and not just like a hold on for dear life until it's over because that's usually how I deal with stress and I end up with shingles or anaphylactic shock or something no joke <laughs> but it's a work in progress that's how that's how we're going to be active recovery
1: active recovery that's part Very of like true. a workout you have yeah. to you can't just stop working out that's you have true. to have this
2: active recovery that's true yep. that's a good point that just hit home with me. See, I need you in my life, Lisa.
1: In the end, do you think we would be able to look back at this time in life and say, you know what, that was really good for us. It was really good for our kids to go through that. Because right now, my 16-year-old daughter is freaking out that she's missing prom and like all of the end-of-the-year activities and all the uncertainty around her AP tests and just the the musical that she was going to audition for. I mean, there's a lot of heartbreak, and she feels like the world is just completely come to an end for her. And I keep telling her, no, this is like, we're going to grow from this. We're going to be stronger.
0: Is that true? (laughs) Am I I giving false hope? Well, no, not at all. In fact, um, what you're telling her is very much borne out in the research that when people weather very difficult life circumstances, and this would be one, um, and they're able to get through them relatively unscathed, what we see is that they are more resilient in the face of new difficulties. So that kind of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Um, is in fact true and well borne out by the research. So that doesn't minimize how you know awful it feels to have you know these kind of once in a lifetime experiences taken away. And I and I don't want to minimize that with teenagers. But what a crisis does is that it adjusts your yardstick for what you consider to be a crisis in the future. <laughs> and so things will not feel so bad when they don't go well after this because they won't be as bad as this was. Yes, um, And that's actually why we like stress. I mean, when I say psychologists are good with stress, when I say it builds growth-giving you know, qualities and durability, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, um, And we should also talk about anxiety because anxiety has got real upsides too. Yeah. Like what? Tell <laughs> me. Yeah, tell us. <laughs> okay. So just like stress is a normal and healthy function in the eyes of psychologists, um, so is anxiety. Anxiety is a normal and healthy emotion that is designed to keep us safe. The way I think about it, it's almost like the the physical pain response. It's an alarm. It tells you something's not right. Pay attention. So the physical pain response says, you know, get your hand off the burner, you know, or take care of that injury. And anxiety says like, hey, heads up, you know, something around you is amiss and you're going to want to deal with it. And so interestingly, under COVID-19, like People's anxiety is up, and it should be, that that we want to be mindful, and we want to be careful, and we want to be doing the things that we need to be doing, like not touching our face, not getting together with other people, not, you know, all of these things, washing our hands, doing a really good job with that, that anxiety really is protective. Um, It can get out of control. It can be too big, meaning that the degree of anxiety somebody feels is way out of proportion with whatever's causing it. Or it can show up when there's no reason for it, like when everything's fine. But other than that, psychologists feel like anxiety is good, healthy, protective and expectable. And and I think that's a message that feels really valuable right now because I'm hearing a lot of people saying, I have anxiety, which, well, of course you do. Like that means your mental health is working exactly as it should. It's not the aim that we should be feeling like Zen state all the time, especially when there's something we need to be paying attention to.
1: I keep trying to tell my kids that they are supposed to feel the full range of human emotion, like anxiety and disappointment and sadness. That's that's part of what you're supposed to be feeling. But how do you know when it is off balance, when you're having anxiety for no reason, when things are going all the way they should? Yeah. And all of a sudden there's like a panic attack that They can't really pin down why it's happening.
0: So it doesn't feel good when emotions feel out of control, right? Like, yes, we should feel the whole range of human emotions, but you don't want to feel like your emotions are taking you for a ride. So one thing that we can do that does actually help people feel more in control is to say, you're supposed to feel upset sometimes. You're supposed to feel helpless right now. Like this is a tough situation. And that alone actually gives people a sense of control. Like, oh yeah, I'm having the right feeling at the right time. Like I'm doing this properly, right? So So we can get that in there. But then if they feel really uncomfortable, we can help people take measures to get their anxiety under control. And something that I feel like I want to shout from the rooftops, and I will say it to anyone who will let me, is we are great in psychology at treating anxiety, this is something we have we've have known about and dealt with and cared for people with anxiety for decades, and we understand it as well as we understand anything in the field. So if a person feels that their anxiety has really gotten the better of them, we can help them. We can use cognitive techniques where they challenge their thinking and bring their anxiety under control. There's all sorts of physical things you can do with your breathing and your relaxation that are intensely powerful. People don't need to feel helpless in the face of their own anxiety.
1: So, when do you suggest a parent seeks professional help, like for a therapist to help their child if they see that they seem to be suffering from excessive anxiety?
0: So, if the kid is asking, I'm always like, you know, like if the kid is saying, I want to talk to somebody, I think that I would always sort of try to honor that or take that pretty seriously. But the way we decide this, you know, when does a kid need help? A really beautiful rule comes from Anna Freud, who was Sigmund Freud's youngest child um, and a really brilliant psychoanalyst in her own right. And what she said is, we know that a kid needs help when there's an interference with progressive development. So what kids are supposed to be doing is growing up. And they're growing up on all sorts of fronts at once, you know, that they're developing their social skills and their academic skills and their self-care skills and their emotion management skills, and gradually building all of these capacities. If they are having an emotional problem that is undermining their growth, then we take that very, very seriously. So you can have a rough week, and that does not mean you need to be in therapy, But if you are so anxious that you will not engage socially or so anxious that you are actually putting the brakes on academically, um, that is starting to interfere with progressive development. And that's when we know that it's time to get you some help.
2: So I have a cute little five-year-old boy who all growing up, he was just he needed to be right by my side. And I started feeling like he was suffering from anxiety. Well, you're
1: emotional, Shelly, because you suffered from anxiety. And back in the 80s when we didn't have the words to fully express what was happening, right, you missed so much school with stomach aches that now we look back on was anxiety. And I know we're talking a lot about teenagers right now, but at what age, like how young should we start cluing in and trying to get help? Because we'll let Shelly get her emotions (laughs) together here, but... Um, she struggled as a young girl and a couple of her kids struggle with this. And in your professional opinion, at what age is this really something we should be trying to get professional help with? And what, what is just normal growing pains as they you know
0: mature through adolescence? Well, so you've asked the magic question, like what's normal and expectable at given ages? There are points in development where anxiety is a fairly prominent but normal thing. So, for example, if we think about six-year-olds, six-year-olds as a group are a pretty brittle bunch. They um, they are very rule-oriented. They get very anxious when something is wrong. They get very upset if they spill the milk. They get very upset if you don't put your seatbelt on quickly. This is normal development in six-year-olds, and there's a whole developmental reason for it, and it's that they have just discovered right and wrong, and they take it very seriously, and it... Luckily, kind of eases a bit over time, their sense of like, you know, things having to be just so, but it is a totally developmentally normal thing to see a pretty anxious six-year-old. And there are developmentally appropriate things that parents can do at home to help to tame that anxiety. Um, My favorite thing to say to a six-year-old is like, okay, so mistakes come in three sizes, small, medium, and large, you know, and the size of the mistake tells you how upset you need to be and how much work it takes to fix it. And that kind of thing really helps six-year-olds to start to have a more um, modulated response when things don't go the way they want them to go. So the challenge is to have a good sense of what's expectable at any given age. And so that, you know, fairly high level of anxiety is for expectable in six-year-olds, but it's helpful as a parent if you've done some reading that makes sure that you know that and gives you some strategies for dealing with it at home. Um, in part because there has been such a shift in the culture to talking about all anxiety as though it is pathological and a shift away from some of the parent education that I think used to be more widely available about the kind of what to expect at various ages. But the bottom line is development is not a smooth and easy process under any conditions. Like development has a lot of bumps and a lot of mess in it. And so then the challenge always is to try to figure out how much of this is normal and expectable bumps and how much of this is something that's actually halting development and, you know, grounds for concern.
1: So accepting that throughout their development, it's normal to have anxiety. And I love how you said that. Is this a big little, or
0: what did you say? Not even large mistakes. Yes. Yes, I love
1: that framework. Um, And I'm wondering if there are any other common mistakes that parents make. I know we had one question on our mom force Facebook group from Julie Julie says, mothers of older kids with anxiety, when fear of an event or situation makes your child near paralyzed, do you make them do it anyway? We walk this fine line between making our child do it so that they will feel braver and realize that they can do hard things and then realizing that it is truly causing near panic and usually makes things worse every time. So maybe we should back off. When do you push and when do you just let it go? I think that's such a great question. I would love your answer on that. Sure.
0: So let's start with one of the best established principles in all of psychology, which is that avoidance feeds anxiety. Uh, yeah. So we have to be very, very careful of letting kids off the hook for things they're frightened of. Um, because what will happen is that the next time that thing comes around, they will actually be more frightened of it than they were before and more inclined to avoid it. And the reason for that is when you avoid, you actually get immediate relief. You feel much better when you decide you're not going to do something that you were frightened of doing.
1: Yeah, and especially when a when a parent swoops in to take that away, then they rely on the parent to, totally. to make them feel better.
0: So the next time that thing comes around, they're looking at the parent like, are you going to get me out of it again? Because that was great last time, right? So it's a bit of a setup. But what what is true, though, is it's very hard to insist that some, you know, panicking child, do it anyway. Like cruelty doesn't really have a place in this. Um, But what we can say to kids is what can you do? Okay. So maybe you can't, you know, perform your solo at the concert. Can we get you to the concert? Can you come and we'll go talk to your choir teacher? Can you perform the solo one day when no one else is there and we hear you and you get used to the idea of it and then you go back to the concert? So what opens up is a set of negotiations between like the ultimate thing you want the child to do, their refusal to do any of it and finding some midpoint that moves them toward what it is they're expected to do. So can you go to the party for 20 minutes, right? Can you hang out? Even You don't even have to talk to anybody. You just have to be there for 20 mm-hmm. minutes. And maybe you'll see someone there you want to talk to. That is a better position for a parent to hold than to say, wow, these parties make you super anxious. You don't need to go. Um, because yeah. next time a party comes around, you're going to have the same problem, but it's actually going to be more intense.
1: Yeah. And then they can feel like they have a little win,
0: just a so baby steps, right? Baby step them there. And, you know, we have a very technical term we call it graduated exposure, right? You slowly move toward <laughs> the thing. And, yeah. and the thing that's really critical in this, and this is where people can get hung up sometimes, um, you don't have to be comfortable to do something. The question yeah. is not, um, okay, you let us know when you feel ready. You let us know when this is going to feel okay. The question is, you let us know when you can bear this, right? Not enjoy it, but like handle it. And you let us know how much you can handle while probably still being quite uncomfortable. Um, But that's actually how you sort of move the ball on these things, is you accept that there may be a pretty high degree of discomfort, but that does not mean the person cannot do the thing.
1: Yeah, that graduated exposure, that's what builds resilience. And I keep going back to this analogy about lifting weights. You know, the first Mm -hmm. time you had to do a wall (laughs) squat and you last like 20 seconds. But the more you do it, the more pressure you put on your muscles, the longer you can hold it, right? The stronger you get. Yeah, you get stronger. But as we go through this process with our kids, we're inevitably going to face a meltdown, right? And I saw something that you posted on your Facebook page it is a guide for how to handle a meltdown. And I'm sure there are lots of families experiencing an inordinate amount of meltdowns during this quarantine
2: time. For young kids and teenagers alike, I'm sure, right? Yes. Do you mind
0: sharing what those tips are? I'm um, sure. So it was sort of funny. It was a little thing I dashed off. And then um, I posted it on my Facebook page and it turned out to be like one of the most popular pieces of writing I've ever done. So I, I was like, oh, okay. So clearly that was something that maybe people could, could use. So it's how to manage a meltdown. And it has nine easy steps. <laughs> and, and if people go to my Facebook page, um, it's actually the pinned post. And what it says there, so the most important instruction is pause between each step to see if it worked. If not, move forward to the next step.
1: So you don't necessarily need nine steps. You might be able no, no, to no, you in the boat. do it in three.
0: <laughs> okay,
2: good. But if this is an epic meltdown with a very strong-willed teenager, you may need the full nine steps. It's nice steps. to know you have nine yes. different
0: ways. You may need to go all the way. So the first thing you do is you listen without interrupting. And this is enormously hard for adults to do. Yes, it is. <laughs> but often kids just need to vent and just unload it all.
1: Honestly... That's what I need, too. I I just need to vent, too. Actually,
0: this applies to adults, too. And then the second, if you are still going, is you offer sincere empathy. You say, oh, man, that stinks, or I'm so sorry that happened. And then you stop. And you'll usually be done. Um, If you're still going... You could validate distress. You could say, you know what, you have every right to feel helpless right now, or every right to be upset right now. That just to say, like, you're having the right feeling at the right time. And, and that often does it. If you're still going, we're on step four. Um, you can support coping. You say, okay, well, is there anything I can do that won't make this worse? You know, or do you want some tea? Or do you want to play with a dog? You know, something like, what's a positive way for you to feel better right now? Um, step five, if you're still going, is to express non-dismissive confidence. So this is where we say, you know what, this is tough, but you are too. You've gotten through stuff like this before, I know you'll get through it. Six, if you're still going, and really you won't be. I mean, really, usually, if you've done the first five steps earnestly, you will not need to keep going, but if you do, you can offer to help problem solve. And this is where we blow it. Usually we just start with throwing solutions at kids. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And this is also where people annoy us, right? Like they just start throwing solutions at us. So you can say, do you want my help trying to solve this? If they say yes, then what you want to do is you want to divide the problem into two categories. You know, things we can do something about and things we can't do anything about. And then step eight is that you brainstorm solutions to the things that you can do something about. And step nine is you help them come to terms with and accept the things they cannot change, which there's always going to be some of that.
1: Yes. Especially right now. Especially.
0: Yes. Very much.
1: Yeah. Because my my teenage daughters cannot understand why they cannot be with their friends. Like, it just doesn't make sense. Like, I, I'm not going to die from the coronavirus. And eventually I'm going to get it. It just doesn't make sense. And, you know, I, I, I'm done trying to explain to them. Yeah
2: the yeah. science behind it. I just feel like, well, I know it doesn't make sense, but this is just the way it is. And I yeah. absolutely loved in your Quarant Teenagers that you um, you talked about love and empathy through this whole thing with your teenagers, because so much of it is just validating, validating the kids, you know, where how they're feeling and how they wish they could be with their friends. And this is something that you can't do because your mom has decided this. That was another thing you said in there that I absolutely loved. It's like you can blame it on your parents that you can't actually get together with your friends. It's just it's it's so good to see that there's tools out there, that there's literature out there, it's so accessible for all of us to to pick the brains and be able to get inside the brains of people like you. And I feel so grateful that I've been introduced to you. I feel like I've had a therapy session today. I've cried. <laughs> I've laughed. You know, you're I've, I've hugged my sisters. <laughs> you're lucky that you found this work as you're just
1: embarking on the teenage years. Because, Lisa, I found your books as I was, you know, just in the messy middle of it all. And I wish that I could have gone back and done some things differently. But, you know what, it's never too late to be a better parent. You can always ask for forgiveness and do a do-over.
0: And there's also a beautiful quote. There's a a psychoanalyst named Donald Winnicott from a long time ago. And he said, what we need to be is good enough parents. Just good enough.
1: Yes. Oh, I love that. Yeah.
2: I love it too. And I also love that even though you, you write mostly about teenagers, that this is so applicable to all ages of children. And even these nine steps, I feel like I'll be able to... Talk myself through any of my <laughs> meltdowns. Yourself. Yes, and my sisters, and my husband, and you know everyone around me. I feel like that will ben- these kinds of tools will benefit us in the long run, in the short run, in the whole all the COVID times, the forever times. I just feel so grateful. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us.
0: You're welcome, and thank you for having me on your show. All
2: right, you just dropped a truth bomb there. You just have to be a good
1: enough parent. That's the perfect way to end this. Where can our listeners find more about you and the work that you're doing?
0: Sure. So my, um, my website, Dr. Lisa Damour, D-R-L-I-S-A-D-A-M-O-U-R, is where I put all of my um, articles and updates about my books and all of my press stuff. So there's lots of resources there.
1: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being with us and good luck thank you. with your family through this um, exciting and challenging time,
2: <laughs> and keep up the good work, and put putting out all these these good things that we're all able to partake of. Thank you so much. Lisa. You're
1: welcome. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you for joining the Mom Force. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review, and come join the conversation over on our Mom Force Facebook group. And check out the show notes for a special chatbooks discount code. Until next time.